All right, John chapter 15. And as I said, imagine you are one of the disciples sitting in the room. What is the Lord going to say here that will catch your ears? Verse 18 of John chapter 15. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin, but now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended." They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you might grant us an extra measure of thy spirit, that we might appreciate and understand the words that are written herein, and how they testify of Christ, and what he did, and what he would have us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Had I been listening to this, um, had the Lord been speaking in my personal presence, there's something that really would have stuck out in my mind. And I'm going to share a short story with you to help illustrate this fact. Many years ago, I was, I was a brand new uh, flight engineer at work, sitting in the um, engineer seat. And I um, picked up the PA for some reason. The, the flight attendant indicated that a smoke alarm was going off in the back. And so she was explaining to the 273 people on board not to worry because it's not a fire, it's just an alarm. Now, if you had heard that, there was one word that would have stuck in your head. And what word would that have been? Fire. That's the only thing you would have heard. You would not have heard not to worry about it. Don't worry, it's just a false alarm. We've checked it out. It's not a big deal. That's the only thing she would have heard. If I'd have been listening and paying attention to the Lord speaking here, verse 2, chapter 16, would have been like, what? What do you say here? The time shall cometh that whosoever killeth you will thinketh that they are doing God's service. That would have stuck out in me. Did he just say that they're going to kill me? He did. He just said they're going to kill him. So that would have stuck out of my mind. So this section here, big picture, if we step back a little bit, the Lord starts with speaking about how God is going to separate them from the world. And then he goes into about how the world is going to hate them and hate us, hate hate Christians, and how they're going to get kicked out of the synagogues, which applies to us, meaning you're going to get kicked out of a false church, and then you're going to get killed. 
Now, I don't take that literally, that they're going to kill me, but I take it literally for the disciples. I don't know any of them that lived, uh, that died a natural death. We know how Paul's life ended. He's the only one we know. He was um, ready to give up his life. He was in prison in Rome, and they uh, beheaded him there, although the Bible doesn't say that specifically. It does say here that they're going to be killed for the, uh, essentially the testimony of Christ. So when we consider what he's laying before the disciples and what they can expect from the world and the reason they can expect it from the world, it's not like he's speaking in a vacuum. I mean, we know that the Lord is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, and he knows uh, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He knows all things. He knows how everything's going to play itself out. But he's got some experience here, too. I mean, and this is the life of the Christian, too. You have the Lord working in you, and then you have your experiential growth as you go out into the world, and you are up against the objections of the world, and you struggle with this issue of your internal sin. So what was the Lord's experience? Well, we know that in the beginning of the book of John. He he tells us right here. We know that he is God. It says in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. We appreciate that he created everything. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then we get down over here into verse 10 of John chapter 1. He says, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Well, if the world doesn't know who the creator of the world is, and he's out walking amongst the world doing marvelous miracles, what would make you think that they would know who you are? Verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, they didn't receive him, and they didn't know who he was. And um, he engaged in his ministry. Isaiah 53 uh, 3 tells us that he was despised and rejected of men, and that certainly was true. That was a prophetic statement. Um, well, how did his ministry go? Well, his ministry opens up in Luke chapter 4 with him going into the synagogue, preaching a message which the first part of it is pretty well received. He walks in there and he opens the book to the prophet Isaiah, goes right to a particular verse. As a matter of fact, he goes to Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2, and it says there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And that's all true. He came and did all that. And when you hear something like that, you're going to look at him and you go, I like what he's saying. Have you not heard pastors say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I've heard him say that. That's a false statement. I mean, it's false for some people and it's true for other people. If you happen to be of the elect, God does love you and God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But if you're not of the elect, that's not a true statement. I don't think uh, being cast into hell is a wonderful plan. Um, But... Scripture tells us that God does not love everybody. But nevertheless, the Lord starts off here, and it starts out pretty well. And it gets to verse, uh, verse 19 here. It says, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, he didn't finish the second half of that verse where it talks about, and the day of his judgment. But he stops here. And he says he closed the book, and he gave it to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon them. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your eyes. In other words, I'm the Messiah that... Isaiah 61 spoke of, you're seeing it fulfilled right before your very eyes. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And then he goes on to continue. He says, well, this is not going to go well. You're actually not going to like what I have to say. And then he begins to preach about the sovereignty of God, his sovereign election and his sovereign grace and will in which he worked in the Gentiles about how he um, saved the woman. He went on to Sarapta, which is a city of Sidon. He speaks of Elijah, rather, going there, and he worked with a woman that was a, a widow there. 
Then in verse 27, and many leopards were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. So he speaks about a sovereign grace, about how it goes to the Gentiles. That message was not well received. What was their response? Exactly what he told his disciples they can expect. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, obviously thrusting him out of the synagogue, thrust him out of the city, and led him to the brow of a hill uh, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Okay? You are not going to receive a better reception than Jesus did. He had um, had quite a wonderful ministry. Verse 30, but he was um, passing through the midst of them and went his way. He didn't argue with anybody, didn't fight with anybody. He just got up, okay. And he went the other way. So we can appreciate the Lord experientially um, speaking, although he hasn't been killed yet, but he knows how he's been received up to that point. Just as he lays out things for the disciples, so is it going to go for him. How did his ministry terminate? Well, it terminates before the um, um, Sanhedrin, where he is um, wrongfully, or I should say it's a kangaroo court, and they um, accuse him of blasphemy. We read about this in Matthew chapter 26. I'll pick it up in verse 62 of Matthew 26. In verse 62, now he's before, he's been taken to um, Caiaphas, and they say unto him, And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it these witness against thee? He's quiet before those that are are casting accusations in his face. Verse 63, but Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be Christ the Son of God. Very clear question. He answers the question. Thou hast said. In other words, that's true. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man, speaking of himself, sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Verse 65. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. In other words, they are um, indignant over the, what they view, uh, view to be the um, honor and integrity and righteousness of God. They believe that Jesus has blasphemed, Jesus who is God, has blasphemed against God. Now, why would they do that? They clearly think they're doing the will of God, just as Jesus has told the disciples in John 15 and 16. They think they're doing the will of God, but clearly they don't know God. If they knew God, they'd recognize that he's standing right in front of him, and they would not accuse him of committing blasphemy. So they think they are doing God's service. Now, a man named Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, does the exact same thing. In Acts chapter 26, he tells about what he has done. In Acts 26, picking it up in verse 62, he says here, I'm sorry, Acts 26 verse 8. Acts 26 verse 8. He said, why should it be thought an incredible thing with you, speaking to King Agrippa, that God should raise the dead? I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, I was doing things that were contrary to the nature and character of Christ, who is God. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death... I gave my voice against them. He's testifying against people, dragging them into prison, that they'll be put to death. 
Verse 11, and I punish them often every synagogue. What's he doing? He's dragging them out of the synagogues, just like the Lord said would happen to them, and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Not only was he um, persecuting them in Jerusalem, but he was going out into Damascus and other cities to get these Christians, drag them out of the synagogues, and have them put to death. Exactly what the Lord says is going to happen in um, John chapter 16. Now, how is the Christian to respond to this type of um, reception from the world, from non-believers, from people who think they are Christians but are not Christians? Because that's who's persecuting the disciples at this time. People that think they are God's children. People that think they're God's, um, uh, think they're doing God's will. Um, we should expect the same thing from not only the world, but from religious people. So how do we respond? First Peter chapter 2, verse 19. 1 Peter 2, 19, we read, For this is thankworthy, if a man, for conscience towards God, endure grief, suffering wrongly. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye should take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. In other words, when you're being falsely accused for your relationship or, or doing things that are for God's glory and honor, which they are, but people are uh, accusing you uh, falsely, you take that patiently and that brings glory to God and to you. But when you've um, um, done things that are wrong and you suffer for it, there's no glory in that whatsoever. Verse 21, for even hereunto you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. So when we look at the Gospels and see how the Lord suffered for righteousness' sake, for testimony about who he was, testimony about God, he took it patiently. He took it quietly. He did not revile against those that reviled against him. Again, speaking of Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not can you imagine being God Almighty and having people slap you in the face and spit on you? I would be tempted to say, <laughs> I'm going to nuke you in about 15 minutes. But he did not say that. He did not do that. When they attempted to arrest him in the garden, he just identified himself with the I am, and they all fell over backwards. So again, it was indicative of he was, in fact, God. And he could have nuked them if he had chosen to, but he was obedient unto his father even unto the death of the cross. So it says here, he threatened not, but commended himself to him that judges righteously. So he commended himself unto God. He was doing the will of God in, in, uh, in everything that took place, and it was necessary for him to suffer for righteousness' sake. So back to John chapter 15. It, it starts out with the word if, in verse 18. If, if the world hate you, Ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. So it starts out with the word if here, and so we should appreciate that the degree to which the world hates you is a function of how much you are separated from the world. And it's important to be separated from the world. In John chapter, uh, first, I think it's, it's James, I'm sorry, James 4, 4. The Lord helps us to appreciate that relationship here. James 4.4, 4, he says, and he's talking to people that are in the church, by the way. James 4.4, 4, he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now the Bible is written to believers, so he's calling the people that are call themselves Christians adulterers and adulteresses. 
Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So when Christians are friends of the world, you can be a Christian in, 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 a, in a sense, because I'm going to get to that in a minute, in a sense be a friend of the world, you're committing adultery. You, you are having a relationship with uh, something other than Christ himself. Christ is not your first love, and you're struggling with this issue. Just like uh, if you're covetous you, you are, or idolatrous, you're, you're committing spiritual idolatry. Is an, um, when you're committing idolatry, it's another way of saying you're committing spiritual adultery and spiritual fornication. So that's what he says here. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. You, you can't be friends of the world and be friends of God. If you truly are a friend of the world and I'm not just having an adulterous relationship here, then you are um, uh, not, you are the enemy of God. So he sets that before him here. He continues on in 1 John chapter 2 is the admonition that we can all appreciate. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 15, says very plainly, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, take this verse and keep it in the back of your mind when you're reading John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Clearly, there's two different worlds in view here. God does not love the world. If he did, the love of the Father would not be in him. So this is not a contradictory verse, but it helps us to appreciate that the word world means different things in different places in the Bible. It's always about the context. So he's telling the Christian here, love not the world. If you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father. It's of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So we have these admonitions set before us here that we are not to love the world. Now, again, verse 18, if the world hate you. So there's this, there's this growing process that a Christian goes through that when they are separated from the world, in other words, when they become a believer, when God puts his Holy Ghost in them and infuses his love in them, there's a process that they go through when they are removing themselves from the world. Now, the Lord sets that before us in 1 Peter chapter 4, that there's a, a pulling away. And so the pulling away is twofold. You are going to pull yourself away from the world, and the world is going to push you away because they view you as a bit of an indictment, a bit of conviction on them because you don't want to do the things that they like to do. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he talks about this. He says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. That's what we used to do is what he's saying here. We behave just like everybody else in the world. Ephesians chapter 2 says the same thing, verses 3. It says the same thing. We used to have our conversation just like everybody else in the world. Verse 4, wherein they, that would meaning the Gentiles, think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. In other words, your drinking buddies are talking about you because you're, you're not at the bar anymore. So you're not doing the things that you used to do, and they are speaking evil of you because of it. They don't really want you to be around them anymore because, as I said, your presence is a conviction um, of them that what they're doing is something they maybe ought not to be doing. Maybe they ought to be spending their time in a more productive way. Maybe they ought to be in church worshiping God. 
Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses the term, the Lord uses the term carnal. Now, it's an oxymoronic term, but he does use it here, and so we can appreciate what it says here. The first four verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's speaking about young Christians, Christians that are young in Christ. So he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. I mean, this should, we should all appreciate in terms of preaching that a, a young Christian uh, is not going to be able to digest some of the meatier um, doctrines in the Bible. It's just going to be too much for them. And all they can do is take milk. So you try to set everything before the congregation so that the young in Christ can, can receive things and digest it and, and work with it and grow by it, as can the more mature Christians. Verse 3, for ye are yet carnal. Now he's writing to Christian believers in the church at Corinth, which is a mess. For ye are yet carnal, and whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? So he uses the word carnal with respect to the way they're behaving themselves three different times in these first four verses. So what we can appreciate here is that as young Christians, the separation of the world is not complete. They've kind of got one foot in both camps. They are still clinging to some of the things in the world, although the Lord is drawing them out of it. And so this process of of growth and grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is taking place in them. They are locked into Romans chapter 7, more on the side of sin than they are on the side of grace, than the more mature Christian who knows that in him, in the individual, in the Christian, dwelleth no good thing, and he's struggling with the law of sin which works in him. Um, But they know that since there is no strength to be had in them, they turn to Christ for the grace to help them through these issues that they're struggling with. The young Christian hasn't worked that out yet and is working it out and struggling with it, struggling with the issues of the flesh, and he's fighting with those things that war in him. Um, in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, it speaks about that. It talks about how we, the fleshy lusts war against the soul. So this battle goes on in the Christian as they struggle with their sin, endeavoring to separate themselves from it and separate themselves from the, um, the world. The Lord uses terms and and in in terms of his admonitions about fighting the good fight, about obeying the Lord, and about heeding the admonitions of the scriptures. And so we talked about that last week, if not the week before, also about hiding God's word in your heart that we might not sin against him. So as as Christians, we are fighting against the world. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 talks about us wrestling against principalities and power. So it uses the word wrestling because it is a wrestle. It is a fight. Um, verse 12 of Ephesians 6 is, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we're fighting a battle on multiple levels. We're fighting, about, fighting against our own sin. We're fighting against the world, the people that are in this world who are doing the will of Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's described as the god of this world. And so we are fighting that spiritual battle, too, against those that would come after us and seek to undermine our, um, our Christian walk. And in John 15, when the Lord um, makes his admonition there, excuse me, John 16, the first verse, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. 
offended here in the context of it, and in the Greek means that you would not have somebody surreptitiously uh, come against you and undermine your walk, do things to you that would cause you, let's say, to revile against them, to uh, draw you into sin. So he's warning them that this would not happen to them. And, and later I'll talk about Paul does the same thing in terms of giving a warning to the church that is there. So ever in the Christian is the tension of uh, how much is me and how much is God and uh, how much do I participate in this. I know experientially that there's a lot of, there's a lot of war going on in, inside of me, and it is not um, an easy fight. Now, I came from a church that all they did was preach grace. Grace, 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 and I agree, grace is um, the exclusive means of our salvation, but he didn't like to preach any of the admonitions in the Scripture. And um, one time he even literally hopscotched across the stage and said that we engage in expository preaching. We do not skip any verses of the Bible. He did that two Sundays in a row. And then about a month later, I had a fellow come up to me. I was an elder there, and he said to me, how come the pastor hopscotches through the scriptures? Every time we get to the admonitions, he stops, and he doesn't finish a particular book on the Bible. Now, in some, in Bible study, he would do that, but not from the pulpit. So um, what I'm sharing with you is there's another part of scriptures. If you look at the epistles, they all follow a pattern. The first part of it is he preaches the gospel. The second part of it is, okay, now that you're a Christian, how should we live? How should we live in a manner that glorifies God? Um, so the Lord is doing the same thing here. He starts off with the gospel, and then we've moved into these other latter chapters where he's talking to his disciples exclusively, and he's telling them how they need to behave themselves. What you can expect from the world, but you have to obey me. If you love me, keep my commandments. So when you look at a verse like Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, you see the tension that the Christian lives under in one verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the second half of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a reverential fear. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, I appreciate that the grace of God is working in me to to will, that is to say, to have a desire to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Um, I appreciate that, but he's also telling me that I've, I've got to fight the battle too, and I know it's a battle. In terms of my own walk, what I have come to appreciate is this. If I sin, it's my fault exclusively. It's 100% my fault if I sin, and the book of Romans starts out with that. You know, The first several chapters there, it talks about how man has rejected God, and sin is 100% man's fault. Um, if I overcome a particular sin, and I even hesitate to use that term, I know it is Christ in me. I give the glory to God. So if I take one step to the left, that's all my fault. If I take a step back to the right, that's all God's glory. And I'm happy to leave it there and give him all the glory and never say anything that somebody might say, as they do in Romans chapter 9, why hast thou made me such? Why hast thou made me thus? It's not God's fault that I do the things that I do or that men sin. It's not God's fault that man is totally depraved. He didn't start that way. But it is man's fault that he sins, and it's God's glory that man does not. Again, you have the argument, shall I sin more, that God get more glory? God forbid. So any then, we need to get comfortable with this tension that um, we are subject to. Um, God works in us to willing to do of his good pleasure, but believe it, believe me, I am working out my own salvation with fear and trembling. So the degree to which you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, trembling is the degree to which you're fighting this 
war that um, is uh, the fleshy lust, which war against the soul. So, again, all this battle has to do with the word if in verse 18 and 19. The degree to which you are being uh, experientially separated from the world is the degree to which the world is going to hate you. Now, there's positional sanctification and there's experiential sanctification. Positional sanctification, you've been separated unto God in Christ from before the foundation of the world. You're going to get to glory, period. Experiential salvation is, experiential, excuse me, experiential sanctification is, where are you in this battle here? If you're a mature Christian, surely you know that you don't do the things that you used to do. You used to enjoy doing certain activities that really vex your soul now. They, quote, grieve the Holy Spirit. You just don't like to do those things again anymore. You don't like to do them anymore because you love God more. Your love for God exceeds your love for the way you used to walk into this world. So if the world does not hate you, it's because the world thinks you are one of its own. You're a carnal Christian, like he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 19 here, he says, I have chosen you out of this world. You're going to get there. He's chosen you out of the world. Therefore, as you grow in Christ, the world is going to hate you. Now, some Christians take a delight in this persecution, but sometimes they misunderstand why they're being <laughs> persecuted. And that's what we read First Peter there, where he says, hey, if you're being buffeted for your own faults, if you're, be, if you're behaving like a fool and you're suffering for it, that's not bringing glory to God. Question is, why are you being persecuted? If it's for your faults, there's no glory. If you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, that's another matter altogether. And in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord talks about that. That's the kind of persecution that brings glory to God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Blessed, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These people are sanctified by the Lord. They're set apart from the world, and they are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They are out of the kingdom of darkness. They're in the kingdom of light. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, conditional, for my sake. They're not beating you up because you're being obnoxious, you know, that you don't take care of your house, you don't mow the lawn, you don't, you don't paint your house. You know, you, they're not persecuting you because you live a ratty life. They're persecuting you for Christ's sake. And so in verse 21, he says, um, John 15, all these things will they do unto you for my name's um, sake, because they know not him that sent me. They're going to do these things. They will happen to you because I have chosen you out of the world and you're going to be a witness for me in verse 7, 27. He says that you shall also bear witness of me and therefore they're going to associate you with Christ and the world hates Christ and um, therefore you are going to be hated by the world. Now, verse 20 and verse 21 of, of John chapter 15 here, he says that, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Our deacon read that for us in 1 John. He says that if they hear you, it's because they're hearing God. So, I mean, it's, if they reject you, they are rejecting um, God as well. So he says they hate me, therefore they're going to hate you. Um, and the reason they hate me is because they hate God. So 
There's a couple of things he's saying here, one of which is really very dangerous and very damning. He's talking about if somebody hates you, bottom line is they are not going to glory. In John chapter in 1 John chapter 4 verse 20, 1 John 4:20 He says, if a man say, I love God, here we have a Christian, people are going to church, they say they love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Well, he doesn't love God. If he doesn't love you, he doesn't love God. If you love the Father, you love the Son. I said that at my friend's funeral once. I said, if you love him, you're going to love his children. Because his characteristics are in his children. If you want to learn more about who he was, get to know his kids. Um, so here he's saying, if you don't love your brother, you are not a Christian. And then he, it's, he steps at it more. If you look over First John 3.15, in First John 3.15 he says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. In other words, Christ is not in them. And how is it going to end up for them? Revelation chapter 22 tells us in Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15. Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Oh, that would be Christians. We obey the Lord because we love him. We do his commandments. We're blessed. That they may have right to the tree of life, which we know is Christ, and may enter through the gates into the city. Christ is the door. (laughs) Verse 15. For without, meaning on the outside of this glorious kingdom, are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. If you hate your brother, you are a murderer and you are not going to glory. So eternal damnation is what is in store for those that hate their brothers. Now, this indictment gets worse in its particularity to the Jews. In verse 22 through 24, he says there, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my Father. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. He's talking about here, they have no excuse for their rejection of him. There is no excuse for their rejection of God. We saw that Christ turned water into wine. He changed the molecular structure to change the elements, to turn it into something it was not. We've seen him still a storm. He just speaks and he calms the winds and the waves. He healed multiple people. Multitudes of people were healed by him. He fed thousands of people. And he raised four people from the dead. He did works that no other man had done. And they acknowledged it when he healed the blind man. He said, no, no other man hath done what this man hath done. That is a true statement. And they knew it. He proved that he was exactly whom he said he was. He, he proved that he was God. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Their utter rejection of Jesus is not only rejection of him as a man. It's a rejection of God Almighty. They have rejected Elohim. They've rejected Jehovah. They've rejected El Shaddai. Whatever names that you can find for God in the Old Testament, they have rejected. And so it is not going to go well for them. And they did it, as it says in verse 25. They did it without 
a cause. In verse 25, he says, But this cometh to pass that the world, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause, meaning without a cause in Christ. No guile. He was a spotless lamb. Um, all he did, he came, he spoke the truth, spake the gospel, healed, served. That's all he did. And they hated him and they rejected him because of the depravity of man. There's no reason in Christ that they would reject him. It resides exclusively in man, in man's pride and in their depravity. They reject the fact that they are a sinner and that they are in need need of um, salvation. In Hebrews chapter 10, it sets before us what they can expect. When you think of the history of national Israel, I think of them as a people persecuted like no other. And why is that? It comes straight out of the scripture. And if you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, he warned them thousands of years before it came to fruition. In Hebrews chapter 10, if I pick it up in verse 26, it says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. God set before them a law. They were to obey it. If they didn't obey it, you know, they, they violated it in some way. You committed adultery. You were stoned to death. That was the end of the story. Verse 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherein he was sanctified an unholy thing? And had done despite unto the spirit of grace. Christ is there amongst them. He has demonstrated who he is. And they have rejected him. And this is why those of us that have children that are not believers. Just, I do. I kind of tremble over this because I've been sharing the gospel with my kids for years and years and years. And they have rejected it. How much sore punishment for them than the guy across the street whom I've never spoken to. People talk about the Indians, you know, is that fair? It's God's election, but nevertheless, if they won't preach the gospel, they will fare better than people in my family whom I have preached the gospel to. Verse 30, For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth to me. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. Verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, to which I say, Amen. It is a fearful thing. Now, Setting this before the disciples, we, I appreciate again that in verse 26, the Lord gives another promise that they're going to receive the Comforter. Now, we know that's the Holy Ghost, which will abide in him, which is the agent of comfort. So I appreciate that he calls it the Comforter because they're going to need comforting because they're going to go up against the world here. And he's told us in chapter 16 that they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And uh, when they kill them, they're going to think they're doing God's will. So they're going to need the Comforter, as do we today need the Comforter. As well, So I appreciate that he, he puts that in there. To receive the comforter is to receive God because the comforter is God. Now in verse 4 of chapter 16, he says, These things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I have told you of them. So he's warned them of what they can expect um, from the world. Now, think about this pattern. The Apostle Paul does the same thing when he finishes up his last missionary trip. In Acts chapter 20, I'll pick it up in verse 25. In Acts chapter 20, verse 25, he says, And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. 
just as the Lord is preparing to depart this earth and warning his disciples what they can expect, the Apostle Paul is telling them the same thing. He's, he's getting ready to depart. This is what you can expect after my departure. The glorious thing is, Christ's coming back. <laughs> Paul's not going back to the church. Ye shall see my face no more. Jesus says, well, I'll be gone for a while, and then I'll be back again. And that's true. He's coming back. Verse 26, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Just as Christ spoke to his disciples and says, I have called you friends because I'm telling you what I have done, neither has the Apostle Paul here uh, failed to declare unto them all the counsel of God. Jesus declared it unto his uh, disciples, and the Lord working through the pen of Paul has shared with us the full counsel of God as well. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost had made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, here's the warning, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Just as he's saying here, I'm commending you to God, the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the comforter. He's commending them to God as well, but in a real sense, because the Lord will indwell them. So we have this wonderful warning throughout the scripture about what we can expect in the world. So um, the first uh, Peter chapter 4 sets that before us about, well, you've been warned. So in first Peter chapter uh, 4, I'll read 12 through 19 and then we'll I'll conclude. First Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. There's nothing that's going to happen to you or me that isn't set forth in the scriptures or that didn't happen to any of the disciples or any of the Christians in this book. There's not, nothing strange here. But rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's sufferings. Just as he was persecuted, we're not above him. You know, the servant's not greater than his master. We're going to receive the same thing. That when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory of God resteth upon you on the part, on their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. So he's telling us, don't suffer for these other reasons, just suffer for Christ. Verse 16, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. For the time has come... That judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? God's going to clean up his Christian church first. We should appreciate that he has a zeal for it. This is supposed to be a house of worship. It should contain only Christians. Granted, a guy might be drawn of the Lord, and we would might bring our children so that they would sit under the preaching of the gospel. But by and large, Church consists of the body of Christ, and you're not a part of the body of Christ unless God be in you and you're in God. So he's going to clean up his own church first, and and I think there's been a lot of that going on in the last couple of years with this COVID, separating um, people from the church. For the time has come that judgments must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinners appear? 
Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit themselves, commit the keeping of their souls to him and well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So as we go through life, we need to trust in the Lord for all things. We can expect persecution and tribulation in the, in the world. The Bible does, in fact, promise that. And the Lord has warned them here. He says, they're going to hate you. The world hates me. It hates you. I separated you from the world. The world loves its own. And this is a warning, by the way. When you see a pastor that's really popular and the world loves him, what does that tell you? It tells you that he's probably part of the world and that when he's preaching, he's appealing to the flesh in some way. He's appealing to people's psychology. He's not speaking on a spiritual level. So having said those things, the Lord has set these warnings before us that we will rest and trust in him. Amen. Amen.